0: If you have a Bible with you, you can you can turn to First Thessalonians chapter five, and uh, what a joy it is to be able to open the Word with you uh, during this Christmas season. First Thessalonians chapter five. Uh, let's read the passage, and then and then we'll. We'll talk about what we're going to get into as, as the time goes on here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, where Paul writes, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, While people while people with him, therefore, encourage one another, and build one another up, just as you are doing. These last two messages, uh, last week and this week, focus on the return of Jesus Christ, which I think is appropriate for the Christmas season. Because as you think about the Christmas season, it's not just that Jesus came some two thousand years ago, but that he is he is one day coming again. Now, when Jesus was born. On that first Christmas, as we would call it. When Jesus was born, the nation of Israel was sleeping. Both literally and spiritually. Later in life, as uh, you get into the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, his disciples were also found sleeping when Jesus approached them. Both literally and spiritually. And today, as we enter yet another Christmas season, many... As Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heaven, many today are sleeping, literally and spiritually. And whether or not you are alive spiritually determines whether or not Jesus is your hope or your fear. And the title of the message is The Hopes and Fears of All the Years. That comes out of the, 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 the Christmas song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. When Jesus came, he was the hope for some, yet rightfully the fear for some. And last week we looked at how he's the hope for Christians. And this week, as, as we look at it, in 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to see how he's actually the cause of fear. As much happiness and, and, and glee that Christmas rightfully brings... When we look at Jesus Christ and his coming the first time, he is both the hope and the fear of all the years. Now, Martin Luther once said that Christians should live their lives from the end backwards. And what he meant there is that that having an understanding of of Jesus, that he's going to come again, not just that he came in the past, but he's coming again, an understanding of what God has revealed about the future or the end times, use the word eschatology, the study of end times, that's, that's what fuels Christian living in the here and now. Right? So working from the end, where is the end, what's coming in the end, and working backwards, how does that now fuel my life as I live in the here and now? And so Paul is repeatedly, as we uh, as we've seen throughout the book, and as we get into 2 Thessalonians, Paul is repeatedly pointing the Thessalonians, Thessalonians forward to the return of Christ, and then bringing them back to their lives now on how this should then affect their lives. Now, actually, I have a confession to make about last week's sermon. Uh, Maybe you don't remember this, but in last week's sermon, I had mentioned that every chapter in First Thessalonians mentions the return of Christ, except for chapter 1. Well, someone, I was going named, came and corrected me on that after the service last week. And rightfully so, because 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 does speak of the return of Christ. It's in verse 10. Where he says, we wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. A very similar theme to what we're talking about here. And beyond that, as you get into 2 Thessalonians, three chapters there, the first two chapters address the return of Christ as well. You can check on chapter 3 just to make sure I'm square on that. uh, And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But but nonetheless, uh, seven of the eight chapters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians... Uh, Mention the coming of Jesus Christ in the future, and then works its way back on how that affects our lives in the here and now. So again, we looked at last week how the return of Christ relates to followers of Jesus. This week, the return of Christ, and yes, even the birth of Christ, as we even go further back, talks to us about how this relates to those who aren't followers of Jesus, those who have never placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, just as a reminder, chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is going to come and rapture the believers uh, uh, out of this world. And so, he's going to take the believers out of this world, that's chapter 4. And then immediately, just to kind of bridge the two chapters, there is going to begin a se- what I believe is a seven-year period of tribulation that we read about in Daniel chapter 9. And this is going to be a seven-year period of tribulation that God pours out his wrath on those who have rejected the gospel. And this is a pattern that God has really throughout Scripture. I want to draw your attention to Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30. It'll be on the screen for you, and it's kind of a longer passage. But I just want to, I just want to address a couple things in this when it comes to God and how He's worked in the past, because Jesus talks about this very same idea in Luke 17. And he says, says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Okay, so just as in the days of Noah. Remember that. They, in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Notice that word, until. Until Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. And he says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that's what's being talked about in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Now I want you to notice the theme here. When judgment came on the whole world in the days of Noah, what happened first? God removed his people. When God rained out Judgment on Sodom. What happened first? God removed Lot. And remember, the Bible calls Rot a, a, a Lot a righteous person, even though he wasn't living for the Lord at the time. But there's a theme throughout Scripture that God removes his people and then pours out judgment on the unbelieving world. And that's why I believe when it comes to this tribulation, the Bible teaches very clearly, we won't be here. We're going to be, like in chapter 4, raptured out. And then begins the tribulation. The tribulation. But also, before we get into the main thrust of the message, and I'm gonna, this, we're going to go over this in a number of different areas just because it keeps uh, calling our attention to it. But as much as this section, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, is about the end times and how it relates to those who don't know Jesus as their Savior, it's heavily—and maybe you've noticed this as we read through it—it's heavily an exhortation to believers— to be ready for the return of Christ at all times. So as much as he says, well here's here's how the day or here's the return of Jesus as it relates to unbelievers. Paul really does spend much of his time intermingling, well how then should Christians live now? There are two dangers for Christians when it comes to what the Bible reveals about the end times. One danger is to be ignorant of what the Bible says about Christ's return. And therefore be ignorant about how we should live. Many Christians perhaps just think, well, it's really no big deal. It's so hard to understand. It's so complicated. You've got so many different views on what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And, and all these people are, you know, we've got all these people who have different reactions and all these things. Well, that's, that's, not, that's, that's a danger to just say, well, it doesn't matter. I don't really need to know anything. And so no big deal. Christ will come and that's all there is to it. But the other danger is to be But I would say overly infatuated, not so much with doctrine, I don't think we'll ever get there, but overly infatuated with what is happening in the world, particularly world politics, that Christians live more of a frenzied life than a faithful life. And so those are the two dangers on, the, uh, on both sides of the spectrum. We're either so ignorant we don't know how to live, or we're, we're so overly infatuated with trying to figure out times and seasons, which Paul says here, and Jesus, we'll get to that eventually, will say not to worry about, that we, get, we just live this frenzied life. Every little piece of news, we just go into frenzy about, about how this relates and how we can fit it in and things like that. I think both are dangerous for us. But we must know the truth. And so, God wants us to respond to the return of Christ in five ways. Uh, We're going to look at those five things this morning. And number one, uh, we need to be aware of what's coming. We need to be aware of what's coming. Uh, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, he says, Concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the Thessalonian church, they were fully aware of what was going on as much as they could know. In the previous section, Paul addressed their ignorance. They were confused. They didn't know what was going to go on with Jesus' return and how it related to believers who have died. Here, he's referring to their knowledge. They have been informed about the topic and and how the the return of Christ relates to those who don't know Jesus. They have been informed about the topic, which we see in verse 2, which is the day of the Lord. And so Paul doesn't spend a lot of time explaining it, because that that wasn't his point. That wasn't the reason why he was writing this passage. His goal in this passage is not to rehearse what they already knew, but he wanted to make sure that what they already knew was, was, was fueling them to live a faithful life with godly behavior. And this is something I'd ask myself as I studied this. I'd ask, does what I know about the end times, does what I know about How this world is all going to be wrapped up by God and the Lord Jesus. Does everything I know about the end times motivate godly behavior in my life? Many Christians have been duped to believe that the only use for prophecy about the future and what's coming, that the only use for it is to help us interpret the times in which we live. And that's... that's true, but that's just that's such a, that's, that's a small part of what the doctrine of the end times should do for us. That's, only, that's just a piece of its usefulness. The doctrine of the end times should sooner influence our decisions on whether or not to give into sin. Or give in to temptation. If our understanding of the doctrine of the end times makes us no more holy and no more godly, then we haven't truly understood the end times the way God intends. Because Paul says they're fully aware, and he uses the word times and seasons. Now, just to help you understand what he's talking about here, those are two words. They're, they're close in meaning, but there's a little bit of a distinction. The word time means just kind of that uh, some duration of time. He doesn't specify, he just says it's a word that just means some duration of time. The word season means uh, it, it refers to how that duration of time is characterized. Okay, so the character of that duration of time. So he's saying the time, so you, this, this duration of, 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 of time, and then he says the word season, that's, that's what characterizes the duration of time. And here he's talking about the day of the Lord. So he's saying, you know, you know that there's a duration of time coming that will be characterized by uh, the Lord Pouring out his judgment on the world. But he says here we don't know all the specifics at the same time, right? He says you are fully aware of kind of the, the, the what and the why, but they didn't really know the when. He says it's going to come like a thief in the night. And this is something Jesus said as well in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, which is why we should, we should always avoid trying to put a time on when Jesus is going to return. And if anybody out there on some televangelist is sitting there telling you, here's when the last day of the world is, or here is when Jesus is going to return, we know from Jesus himself that that person is a liar, a fool, most likely a heretic. He said to them, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, this is Jesus, it is not for you to know. There's the phrase, times or seasons, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I appreciated John's prayer just before the message. Because when it comes to the end times, Jesus says, hey, you're not going to know when this thing's going to take place. But hey, while you're waiting, you can go tell people that I am coming. You can be busy telling people about Jesus in the meantime because I'm going to give you the power to do that. So the response of not knowing the specifics isn't to obsess over trying to figure out what Jesus says you're never going to figure out. But the response is to live alert, holy, self-controlled lives, sharing the gospel, telling people that there is a Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who will return Now, before we move on, just a word on the day of the Lord. Okay, because they fully knew that the exact date couldn't fully be known. But they did know that the day of the Lord was coming, and they did know what it would be like. This is the same day of the Lord that the Old Testament talks about. We just kind of got done uh, in the summer, uh, which seems so long ago now. But through the summer, we went through the the 12 minor prophets. This is what Joel talked about, Zephaniah talked about. It's a period of time filled with sorrow and darkness for the wicked. A day when God reveals his character, pours out his judgment on those who reject Christ, and then establishes Jesus' everlasting kingdom on this earth. And the day starts with the rapture of the church, as we talked about earlier. That day, the day of the Lord, the day of his judgment, will start with the church, followers of Jesus, being taken out of the world. And the Bible describes this as something like a thief in the night. And so first we need to be aware of what's coming but secondly, as Christians, and even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to be assured of, of our destiny, of your destiny. As we get into verse 3, Paul tells us what the coming day of the Lord is going to look like. So notice what it says in verse 3. He says, he says, it's like the thief in the night, the day of the Lord is. He says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So the unbelieving world will be saying, if if not out loud, then certainly in their hearts and in their attitudes, they will be saying that there is peace and security. Now, the idea there is not to say that they think everything in their lives is just super peaceful or they've got financial security or whatever, but the idea here in context is, is really that they, they're, they're not, they don't really acknowledge that, that there is a coming judgment. Now think about what the world is saying today. Think about all the messages you hear on TV. Think about the speeches you hear given by politicians. Think about the conversations that uh, you have or that you, that you hear at, at, at the workplace or in school or just kind of out and about. Now, in in all of that, in all of that, as you hear what people are saying today, is there any inclination at all that people in the world today are expecting the all-powerful, holy Jesus to return from heaven and establish his kingdom? The answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's the idea here. Is that maybe not every single person is going to say, I have total peace and I have total security. But the last thing the unbelieving world expects is judgment. Divine judgment. They feel secure from divine judgment. Which is crazy given the, the season we're in. Because Jesus, who was born is the king, and he's going to come and set up his kingdom, and divine judgment will come with it. Now, I want to look again, we looked at this verse earlier, but I want to look again at Luke chapter 17, because I want to I kind of focus in on the other stuff that's going on here. Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 30. Again, look, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. What was going on in the days of Noah? Well, everybody was eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the day of days of Lot, well, what was going on in the days of Lot? They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day that Lot came out of Sodom, fire and sulfur sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. This is this is what Paul is talking about. Now you could stop and say, Well, wait a minute, Christians do these things. We eat. We drink, we marry, we build, we plant, we buy, we sell. Jesus is referring to those who know only those things. Jesus Jesus is referring to those whose lives consist in these things. He's referring to those whose, whose very hope depends on these things. It's the things of this world. And it's so easy. Uh, Amber and I went to Target yesterday to finish up Christmas shopping and and as much as just, you know, every aisle you turn down, there's, you know, you hear arguments of people. And, you know, just, you know, sometimes we just get a little crabby around these days. And I got to say, it's hard for me not to go through this season and, you know, be like, oh, you know, what am I going to get? And, you know, is it going to be the best gift ever? And, you know, and is this just going to make my kids really happy and all this? And, you know, we get so caught up in, you know, what's the one gift? What's the one thing in this world that's going to just just, you know, save my kids, basically, you know? And Jesus is saying, it's those whose whole lives consist of trying to find that one source of, should we say it, salvation in this world. Where when that return, when that judgment comes, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be like a thief in the night. Like, we're not expecting it at all. There will be sudden destruction. Verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, what is that sudden destruction Mean. If you turned over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it, it clarifies a little bit what, what sudden destruction means for the unbeliever. It says, <clears throat> 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Well, what is eternal destruction? Well, here it is, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's what, that's what this is. This is, where, this is why we look at eternal destruction, eternal death is far worse than physical death. Physical death happens once and that's kind of it, but eternal death is something that goes on forever and ever and ever. And it's away from the presence of the Lord. That's, that's, that's eternal death, being away from the Lord and being away from his glory. We sing the song Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest. And eternal destruction, eternal death is away from glory to God in the highest for all eternity. And my concern as we come to this is is for us to realize that not everyone is saved in the end. Not everyone in here is saved in the end. Many accept church as their savior. Many accept baptism as their savior. Communion as their Savior, good works as their Savior, money as their Savior, family as their Savior, some position or whatever as their Savior. Those aren't saviors. There's only one Savior, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and you'll be saved. We've got to be clear on that. We've got to be clear on that. And as much as I, you know, I'm sure you weren't coming to, you know, the the Sunday before Christmas, ready to hear about condemnation and judgment, all those things. We've got to be clear on this. That this Jesus that was born wasn't just born so we could have a good time every December, but that he was born to save us from the judgment. Uh, just the other day, my, my five-year-old son, uh, Cohen, he was watching the kids' uh, animated version of The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's on Right Now Media. They, they made a kind of a movie of, of the, the, old, the old book from uh, uh, John Bunyan on The Pilgrim's Progress. And he was, as we were watching these, these little, short little five-minute episodes throughout, the, throughout the, the series there, he was kind of walking me through, you know, what was going on. And he was just getting all of the metaphors, all of the allegories completely wrong. Uh, just as, you know, they came up on this, he's like, oh, here's this guy's name, and he totally d- didn't have it right, and he's, here's what's going on, and he totally didn't have that right, and just, as we're walking through, I'm just like, I'm glad he's watching this, and, I, and, and, and actually, that's kind of that's what they get to watch um, for now, but, but, but I was glad for that, but he's just missing everything. I just kind of listen eh, no no okay and just listen along until it came to the scene and to the point if you remember the story christian he goes through this wicked gate and he's going he keeps going down the path and he's got the big burden of sin uh on his back and, he, and christian the name of the character in the pilgrim's progress begins to walk up this this narrow path on a hill and at the top of the hill there was a cross and it was at this moment where cohen said correctly and clearly Christian loses his burden because he goes to the cross. I'll take that. (laughs) And you too can lose your burden. The burden of sin. And the burden that weighs on you with this this very destruction that we're talking about. But you've got to go to the cross. You must believe that Jesus died to save you from this wrath. You reject the grace of Jesus and he will reject you. You receive his grace and he will receive you. And the confidence we have is that there will be escape for the Christian. He says, But you, that's why Paul says in verse 4, you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, because you're children of light, you're children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. This isn't going to be a surprise to us. We're, we're not in darkness. We're not, we don't exist in the realm of evil and sin. Even though, yes, we still have sin in our hearts and we still sin. But the moral and spiritual darkness is no longer the realm in which we live. The day of wrath and judgment is not going to lay hold of us because we have believed in the Lord Jesus. That's Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, he says, we give thanks to the Father because he's qualified us. He's qualified you, notice here, to share uh, in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of light of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is loading on the assurance here. You're not in darkness, even though, yes, you still sin, but you're a child of light if you've trusted in Jesus to save you. Which leads to the third thing as we hurry along through this passage. Third response we need to have is we need to be alert to spiritual danger. That's what Paul is saying in verses 6 through 8. He says, so then let let us not sleep as others do but let us keep awake and be sober. And that word word sober, he's not just talking about don't get drunk. The word sober is kind of a, a, an all of life thing, to be self-controlled. And so this is where Paul gets into the so what of all of this. Here he's contrasting being awake with being asleep. Now, it's not the same asleep as we looked at last week. Remember, being asleep was, was a euphemism for Christians who have died in the Lord. But here, the word asleep is, is referring to being indifferent to spiritual realities. It's spiritual and moral laziness. So as what Paul is saying is, is that as one who won't experience the wrath of God, the Christian should avoid involving himself doing anything in this world, that is the reason for God's wrath. Uh, a recent podcast answered a question uh, submitted. Uh, the question was, how progressive can Christians get? And so the idea behind, if you don't know what a progressive Christian is or what, what, it, what, what kind of the idea is, uh, the idea of being progressive is that the idea of the question basically is, how long can a Christian hold hands with the culture before they need to break ways? Basically the idea. How long can I hold hands with what the culture is doing before I've absolutely got to, you know, break off, uh, break off ties? And here's how the question was answered. Um, it was answered, when you celebrate the very behaviors that keep a person out of the kingdom of God, you are anti-gospel. You are pointing people into the very sin that Jesus died to rescue the people from. This is a falsification of the gospel. It is saying, Jesus didn't die for this. It doesn't need to be died for. It's beautiful. It's not damning. And so when Paul says here we need to keep awake, and he says, let's not sleep. Let's keep awake. Let's be sober, self-controlled. Really what he's saying here is Christians should not, and, and the answer to this question is that Christians should not involve themselves in anything that Jesus had to die for. We can't sleep. We can't lose our spiritual alertness and awareness. But there's some there's important words in verse six that I that I want to bring attention to because Paul says so. Then he says, "Let us." He says, "Let us not sleep as other do, others do, but let us." It's like Paul is saying, "I'm I, I understand the struggle. I'm with you on this. Like staying awake spiritually is is hard." And sometimes it's difficult, and it's easy to lose our spiritual alertness. Paul understood that he himself was susceptible to the temptation of spiritual laziness, that he too needed to guard his own soul against losing its alertness towards Jesus' return. A Christian who is truly aware and assured of what's coming in the future will live an alert and holy life. Paul says that in Titus two eleven 11-13. For the grace of God has appeared. It brings salvation for all people. What does it do also? It also trains us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled. There it is. Upright and godly lives in this present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we lose our watchfulness, we no longer find ourselves waiting with eager longing for the return of Jesus, then ungodliness and and, and, and worldliness and worldly passions and, and the self-indulgence, that's when those things enter in. So if you're ever in a season of life and you notice this sort of ungodliness, worldly passions, this, this self-indulgence, all these things entering into your life, it's, it's, it's because you've, you've lost your spiritual alertness. You're falling asleep. And Paul is saying, listen, that's nighttime stuff. We're of the day. We're children of the light. And he tells us about the armor of God in verse 8. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, again, self-controlled, vigilant, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for the helmet the hope of salvation. So we have the armor of God, which is unpacked further in Ephesians chapter 6. We're not going to turn there, but that gives us a fuller picture of the Christian armor, but Paul here addresses two. The breastplate covers all the vital organs. And especially the heart. The heart is the center of who we are. All sins flow from our heart. Our heart is the place of desire and decision. And then he says, it's a breastplate of faith and love. Why does he use faith and love? Well, faith is, without faith, the Bible says, it's impossible to please God. Without love, it's impossible to verify you have faith in God. The helmet of the hope of salvation keeps us calm and level in the midst of a crazy and broken world. It gets our minds on a, on a future salvation. It calms our, calms our souls as we face troubles. It resists the influences of this present age. It's not just like a, I hope I'll be saved, but it's, I know that I will be saved. And so the alert Christian is one of faith, hope, and love. Now, I'm not a morning person. Amen? Okay, we got a few out there. I'm not a morning person. I wake up slowly. Some days slower than others. Some people wake up and they're just as hunky-dory as could be. But as Christians, Paul is saying here is we we all need to be morning people. We need to be ready for the spiritual fights that come our way. We've got to be awake. We've got to be alert. Two more responses to the coming of Jesus Christ. Number four. We need to be amazed at God's grace. And that's, that's verses 9 and 10. And you may not see Paul say in these verses, hey, you should be amazed at God's grace. But as you read about God's grace in verses 9 and 10, what else can we say other than this should amaze us? This hope of salvation. This hope of salvation. Our destiny. That's what he says here, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. That's not our destiny. From before the world began, God set The destination for his children. And it's always been salvation for his children. God's intention for believers in Jesus Christ is for them to be in glory, not experience wrath. Wrath is for those who reject Jesus Christ, wrath is for those who reject his grace, but glory is for those who receive the Lord Jesus as their Savior. And it's all because, if you notice uh, in verse 10, it's all because of. God, Christ, Jesus's atoning work. We obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. Who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The wrath of God is totally satisfied for those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, as we come to the, the close of this passage, it says, God has not destined us for wrath. And we've talked a lot about God's wrath and God's destruction and, and God's judgment. Have you ever stopped to really think about the wrath of God? We view it mostly as a negative thing and not something we really want to think about too much. But as you think about the wrath of God, first you'll find that this is a good thing. This is a good and perfect attribute of God's. That he exhibits perfectly. Would you want to worship a God who didn't hate sin, would you want to worship a God who sees a school shooting challenge go off across the country on TikTok and sit back and say, threats against little children that I love to be shot and killed and murdered, would you want to worship a God who didn't hate that? It's a good attribute. That he exhibits perfectly. And he's willing to say, listen, your sins are forgiven. You're given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you'll never experience my wrath. But further, let's, let's even think about this a little bit more. How does, how does God's wrath affect even our marriages, our singleness, our friendships, or our use of time? Well, think about it. God's wrath is that God hates sin. Therefore, sin is worthy to be hated. You're doing a good thing if you hate sin. Do you hate sin? And finally, when you think of God's wrath, it should lead you all the more to be amazed at God's grace. Because Jesus bore the wrath our sins deserve so that we might be saved. Parents who grasp this won't simply look to modify behavior in their children, but instill in their children a picture of that reality of God's grace. Maybe when loneliness sets in. This doctrine reminds us that we have a God who not only just sat up there just ready to pour out his wrath, but we have a God who entered into our very suffering. And we have the Lord Jesus who bore the wrath that we deserve And so he's with us, and he's able to empathize with us, and, and he's proving this Christmas season that he's willing to enter into our suffering, our loneliness, our hurts. When temptations come, this doctrine reminds us that I've been set free in Christ Jesus to hate what God hates and walk in freedom from sin. It all boils down to this, really, an understanding of God's wrath leads to an amazement at God's grace and that amazement infiltrates all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our loneliness, all of our hurt, all of our sorrow. Let's look at the last one as we close this out. The fifth response is that we need to be available to others. We need to be available to others. Verse 11, therefore, he says out of, out of all this as you as you now carry on, he says the Thessalonian church, as you now carry on in fellowship with one another, encourage one another. And now he said encourage one another at the end of chapter four, but now he adds something else in this. Not only encourage one another, but also build one another up just as you are doing. We've, already, we've talked a lot about that word encourage. I want to focus in on, on being built up. We have to be available to encourage, and we have to be available to be built up because your Christian walk is largely a community project. A house doesn't build itself, it needs builders. And so where can you go to find a bunch of builders, where can you go to find a bunch of Christian builders that will build up your soul in the likeness of Jesus Christ? You find them at the church. And in today's world, and while I make no judgment on people who are doing this, and I do think they have a place, but in today's world where there are virtual services and digital so-called churches and all but anything trying to relate to the actual gathering Nothing will replace the actual gathering of people physically in a local church. And it's for this very reason. Because we need all 200 people to be building each other up, or however many people is in the church. A helpfully sanctifying community will be built on the fruits of the Spirit. And a community of the fruits of the Spirit will build up other Christians so that each part of the body, each person is edified. Now remember, all this is in the context of being alert, of staying awake, of being aware. I mean, We need to help each other stay awake. We need, we need someone in the passenger seat with us on this long journey of the Christian life to make sure we don't fall asleep at the wheel and go crash into a ditch. We need to build each other up. We all need to walk in here every Sunday acknowledging that we are a construction project coming to worship and give praise to the God who saved us. And that, it's, and that God is building us up through the other people, the other believers, and the work in our lives. The Bible knows nothing of a sneak in and duck out Christianity. We've got to be available to and for others. Extend grace. be willing to receive help from others and not convince ourselves that 90% of the problem is somebody else and I've got about 10% of the problem. No, we all need to be built up. We need to help one another in our walk. If I could close out again with a reference to the Pilgrim's Progress while my mind was on it, it's when Christian meets up with Hopeful and they're continuing on their path and they come upon what's called the Enchanted Grounds. And Hopeful begins to fall asleep and even, he even tells, he says to Christian, Christian, perhaps as we walk this road, maybe we should, we should pull over here and, you know, step aside and lay down and take a nap. And Christian, and even in the book, uses this, this, this phrase, says, we can't fall asleep. We're of the day, we're not of the night. And then Christian says, he says, now then, let, let us, to prevent drowsiness in this place, let us fall into good disclosure. And then he says, good discourse preventeth drowsiness. Stated another way, gospel community helps prevent gospel calamity. And they began to discuss spiritual things. That's what we need. We need to have people we can talk to and discuss spiritual things. So if you're drowsy, if you're falling asleep, if you're losing your watchfulness, you should know it comes, even for a Christian, it comes at great cost. No, you'll never experience the wrath of God. The lyrics of the first stanza of A Little Town of Bethlehem fit here. A little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, which might be some of you this morning. You're in a deep, dark, dreamless sleep as the silent stars go by day after day. Never, never responding, never seeing, never placing your faith in the Lord Jesus. The song goes on to say, yet, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. May the gospel awaken us all. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be ready. Help me to be ready. So prone in my own heart, and my own soul. Even recently, Lord, I've, I've felt it desire to lay down and take a nap, spiritually speaking, to let my guard down, to not be alert, to just take a little break here with all the craziness and everything that's going on. Lord, may it it not be for me, for us, as we continue to build one another up, help us, Lord, to keep each other awake in the the days and years and uh, decades ahead. The Calvary Baptist Church might be a place of where the gospel shines in dark streets. Pray these things in Jesus' name.